All scripture is God-breathed and advantageous, if you have it. It doesn't really do any good as a book. I mean, I suppose I could like weigh down some paper, keep a door open, uh, gather dust. Be really good for that, right? Um, but then, once it's more than just a book, once it's scripture, it's holy. There's lots of books that are profane. This is not profane. It's holy. It's set apart. It's the recorded, active, living word of the holy, only one true almighty God in your language. And it's to your advantage to read it. That's like my whole sermon right there. Really. I mean, we're going to go through the church in Berea. We're going to talk about the history. We're going to get into the Peloponnesian Wars. I mean, ah, it's so much fun. But the whole point is, I'm really trying to convince you to read your Bible at home. And if you don't think it's to your advantage to do so, you won't. You're going to think instead, I got other things I, what do you say to yourself? Need to do, have to do, right? The inner talk, better do, I don't know. But it's always some other thing, right? And I know what it's like. I mean, I, I try to pray the Psalms four times a day. I try to open the Bible at least four times a day to pray the Psalms. Uh, unfortunately, I got some of them memorized, so I don't have to open the Bible for them anymore, but I still want to. And so at like four in the afternoon, when I know I can do my, my evening, early evening, some of the Solomon prayers, I look at that Bible sitting there and I feel it. It's like, oh, I should. But somehow should isn't like I want to. I don't know why, except for that I'm a carnal, sinful, broken human. All right? Who knows the only reason I'm going to hunger for the scriptures is because Jesus makes me hunger for them. And so that means it's like, hey, Jesus, how come I'm not hungry for the scriptures? And as I've asked that question for several years now, uh, his answer is because the demons are assaulting your nation and destroying everything about hope and beauty and goodness. And so their job as demons is to keep you from opening that Bible. Everything that's going wrong in the world, every fire burning, every explosion happening, every population collapsing is so you won't open your Bible. That's the devil's plan. To scare you into activity so you're a busy little bee and you never do anything except for uh, what you are pushed to do by the psychology around you, by the energy around you. And what the Bible does to your advantage when you open it is it silences all of those stories from around you for at least a moment by reaching from deep in history to grab your heart, your soul, your brain, your mind, not just as a book. Ancient history can do this as a book, but again, as the living and active word of God, the Holy Spirit present in your life, a sword by which you can distinguish from good and evil. You pick it up and you use it. It's a gift. You don't have it because you grabbed it. But now that you have it because it's been given, you are empowered to use it. And that's what Paul then is saying to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 16, page 996 of your pew Bible. We'll get to Acts, but we're going to start with 1 Timothy 3, 16, page 996, where it says again that all Scripture... Paul tells young Pastor Timothy, I'm going to die. The world's going to get worse. Evil man, imposters, all this stuff. Remember, the holy writings are, it says, God breathed or breathed out by God. The word isn't even a real word in Greek. Like Paul made it up. You ever have people do that? They make up words, right? Um, you kind of add an I-N-G or a, a, I don't know, something to the front of a word. Um, I'm, I'm adulting right now, or I'm 
you know, something like that. All sorts of nonsense words. Well, that's kind of what Paul did, though. He took two words. He took the word spirit, which also means breath and also means wind. Pneuma means all those things. He took that word, pneuma, spirit, breath, wind, and he took the word God, and he just shoved them together as one word. Spirit God. Breathe God. One word. All scripture is breathe God, spirit God. I, I think as Christians, we can understand all scripture is from the Holy Spirit. It's like that, it's that obvious what that really means. Breathed out by God, from the Holy Spirit. Right now, today, you're looking at it on the page. That's from the Holy Spirit to you. Huh? All scripture, the whole book is that way. And is, it says useful probably. It's advantageous. It's beneficial. It's good. You want it on your side, right? And then what's it, what's it advantageous for? There's four things listed here in verse 16, right? First one's teaching. Now, teaching here doesn't quite mean lecturing for a test. It's not quite what teaching here means. Teaching's a little bit more along the way of, like, you need to learn how to do something, and you don't know how, but you know somebody who knows how, and you ask them to share how they do it, and they show you, and then you are able to do it too, right? Apprenticeship right? Uh, instruction, any of these things. Uh, the Bible, for you, by yourself, before I get involved and tell you what it means, is to your advantage, useful for instruction in things. Just going to make you wiser. Just reading it. Just do it. It'll make you wiser. You know? You're like, how do I know? I, well, have you, have you watched how dumb everything got in the last hundred years? A hundred years ago, that's all the average farmhand had was a Bible, and those guys, well, they could talk about ancient history. They could talk about how to make things work when they didn't know. They didn't need someone from far away to always come and save them. Huh? Uh, we've gotten weak here in these days, and a big part of it is the lack of teaching in our midst. Uh, more money spent in this state, I believe, on teaching than on abortion. Huh? And yet, how much good has it done to the young? How much good? Uh, for teaching, for reproof, okay, so this is like rebuke. This is kind of the hard one in the list. This is where uh, you have to say to someone else, I won't walk that road with you. I won't do this thing you're saying. They say, why? They say, well, because the Bible says not to. That's reproof. Huh? The Bible's to your advantage for that, both to reprove you so you stop walking on the foolish path, but also that it warns you, don't walk on the foolish path. And you go, oh, that's the foolish path. See, it's, it's wide, it leads to destruction, and it's easy to fall off of all at the same time. Right? Don't walk that way. So it's useful for that. And then for correction, think of correction less as rebuke and more as like, you know how sometimes you have a tree that you want to have grow straight, but it's on a windy hill, right? And you'll stick a stake in the ground and tie it to the tree to make the tree grow straight. That's, that's correction. That's the idea here, right? Discipline. Um, order that's kind of hard on the outside, but it really isn't bad for you. It's good for you, right? I mean, who wants to brush their teeth when they're two? Right? Nobody does, right? but you learn it eventually is good for you. That's, that's the correction word here. And then finally, you have the training in righteousness, which is just such a powerful, powerful word and phrase here. That word righteousness really is justification. It is the fact that you stand before God, healed, clean, absolved, saved, everything. There's nothing he has left to say to you about what he's going to give you. It's all good forever. That's righteousness. Jesus' righteousness at the cross, buying you back, right? And now it's, Scripture is good for training you in that. To train you to trust in Christ's righteousness while he corrects you with discipline, 
so that you may rebuke the world and also pass on what you to believe what you believe to anybody who would ask scriptures to your advantage for that uh, and paul is saying this to timothy uh, as a a preacher but I, I think it does apply now back then it would have been pretty expensive to get a copy of the bible honestly they couldn't really get a copy of the bible uh, you could get copies of Old Testament texts. We have such a abundance of wealth at our fingertips today. Uh, these paper Bibles that you almost have to throw them away or get rid of them because no one wants them. We printed so many. And yet I can envision a day, I really can, where it's hard to find one. Or it's hard to find one they haven't changed. Yeah. And I can envision a day where we're so ignorant we don't even know it changed. You got someone holding it up and saying, this is the real Bible. Actually, we've, we've been through this. You got the Quran, you got the uh, Book of Mormon. I mean, it's happened before, right? And so, so I can see it happening again to this, this country, to this church body, especially if we're so arrogant as to think it, it can't ever go away. Try that next time with the Bible sitting on the, on the desk and you're like, oh, I don't really want to. Well, what if next time you can't? Just ask yourself that question. Do I live in a world where it's possible that it's gone? And the fact is, you do, whether you believe it or not, right? And the more you're able to believe, I live in a world where the devil will actually take the Bible away from me if I let him. Well, maybe you'll pick that thing up then, won't you? Yeah. Say a few words out loud. You have to read it for three hours in the afternoon. Go to a psalm, read it out loud, be done. Move on. Again, fighting against the devil's psychological pressure to silence you in your day and remove the word of God and the Holy Spirit's activity in your day by convincing you it's not to your advantage because it doesn't feel good. Right. That's the game right now. now. What feels good? Distraction. Right. And yet everyone knows, you know, do, you, do you go to practice for your sport because it feels good? Is that what you do? You know, When you do all that work to get good at something, it's because it feels good the whole time? Or does it feel good after it hurts and you know you did something? That's when I find it feels good. It feels good after I do all the work and I go, ah, oh, that felt good. Scripture is the same way. So if you're not hungry for it, the antidote is not wait till you're hungry for it. It's start eating anyway. The fact that you're not hungry is a sign to you of how weak your spirit is, how much you need more. You need more good food, less bad food, right? More health, less sickness. So again, convincing yourself that it's to my advantage to read it, even if I don't want to. And so therefore, I'm going to try is my my pitch to all of you who aren't already reading the Bible every day at home. It's the reason why we're looking at Berea again. Paul likes Berea as a place because when he goes there, they receive him and they study the scriptures every day. They'd already been doing this. If you go back in Timothy's life, who he's writing to here, you find also, he says it right here, that from childhood he'd been reading the Old Testament Bible. So it wasn't really so strange to him when Paul shows up in his hometown talking about how the son of David is risen from the dead and has declared his kingdom, a kingdom of mercy and righteousness for all time. He's like, yeah, well, Isaiah says that too. Or he said it was going to happen something like that. And well, it has. So the people who are Jews reading their Bible daily looking for the Christ, they find Christ when he comes. And Berea is, is that people. I'm getting ahead of myself here, but uh, St. Paul Lutheran Church, this entire Run to the Tomb series, this entire Easter season series is so we can walk through this congregation right now, Berea, as a people, us together with them. And I can say to you that it is my ardent and fervent prayer that we want to be like Berea. 
Antioch's a cool place. Philadelphia is pretty awesome. We're going to be there in a little bit. But all places exist as they are in God's word when they're like Berea. Where no matter what I say from the pulpit, you're going to go and test your religion this week against the Bible. To see if what I'm preaching is what the Bible's teaching. And you can't do that just right now when I'm talking to you. And you can't do it just with the texts I teach you. You actually have to get into it enough to find some confusion. I don't understand that part. That's good when you get there. That's good. It doesn't, you don't have to stay there. Right? But that means that you can see you have somewhere to learn. The hard part is how do you get enough handholds to crawl in, right? Which is why those Sons of Solomon and Daughters of Wisdom booklets are out there. That's how to start crawling into the Bible every day. That's what they're for. Right? Um, so all of this is to say I want us to be like Berea. That's why we're going to look at them now here, and we're going to do a little, little history lesson as we get there. You can keep 2 Timothy marked if you want. We might go back for a little bit of it, but find your way to page 926 of the Pew Bible. This will be in Acts chapter 17, where we'll pick up at 17 verse 1, but I'm going to kind of lead us there uh, a little bit with some story time. And this is where we're going to get into uh, Berea of Macedonia as a place, right? Uh, if you were here last week, you heard me talk about Antioch as the capital of Grecian Persia. That is, after Alexander the Great conquers everything and dies, the general that gets most of it and rules most of it for a long time is named Seleucus. Uh, he rules from western Syria, Turkey. He founds a city, two of them, but one of them is named Antioch. So the capital of his empire that lasts for 300 years is Antioch the first place that we were called Christians. We talked about what happened with Christianity in that city last week. So this week, we've got a little of the same, but now we're in Berea. Berea is in a, in a very different place um, uh, than Antioch. You know, I almost had those maps ready for us today. Are the maps in the pew in front of you? Yeah, you got So if you got the map, I'll try to show you on the map. Give me one second to pull mine out. Um, here it is. I think it'll get us there. You want the horizontal map? Uh, where you can see Crete, the island, right? And on the far left, you can even see the upper left corner says Macedonia. There it is right there. You may have heard it as Macedonia before. That's the way a lot of Americans pronounce it, but the original Macedonians called it Macedonia. Um, so there it is there. Uh, and south of that is this little kind of funny looking hand, right? A hand of a peninsula, that's Greece. And everything about what we're going to be dealing with today uh, is in that space. But then from there, Alexander the Great conquered everything to India. Everything down to the Sahara Desert and everything to Spain. He had all of it from that little spot. And Berea was there before him and after him. But as a result of its location and him becomes what was just kind of a crossroads town on an east-west strip between Persia and the wilds, because the west and Rome even didn't exist quite, would have been the wilds, right? It's sitting there on this road to the empire. But can you imagine now on the road to the empire as the empire transitions, let's jump way ahead to Rome. So by the time that Constantinople is being founded by Constantine in the east, northern Turkey, for the Roman Empire to be his eastern headquarters, guess what's exactly halfway between Constantinople 
and Rome. Well, wouldn't you know, it's Berea and Thessalonica, right, right by each other. On this ancient road called the Via Ignatia, that's the east-west road. It's the Silk Trail if you just keep going west, you know, past Persia. Huh? So Berea is there. It's settled underneath a beautiful mountain called Mount Vermean. You can go visit it today. The Byzantine church is still there in Veroia. It's called Veroia today. Uh, and there's two major Eastern Orthodox or Byzantine uh, churches there, the Church of the Resurrection and one called the Agius Pentelemon. Uh, and for its 2,500-year history, this town that began as a crossroads town, lasted through all the major empires, lasted through the Muslim conquest of Greece, came back, Ottoman Turks and all this, Greece gets its independence in uh, 1900, somewhere around there, and gathers together. All along, Berea experiences uh, effective success as a town, as a city. Like even when they're conquered, they just kind of, okay, and they go on. Because they're so necessary to the land and everything that's around them. It's there then, in that place that's so central to the crossroads, that the word of God's going to take root. Yeah? But I want to give you some more story about what else has passed through this crossroads. Because Berea is south of Thessalonica and Philippi, which again are the two major cities that you would recognize in this kingdom of Macedonia. And the kingdom of Macedonia is the kingdom of a guy named Philip of Macedonia, who is the weaker of the Greek city-states during a time called the Peloponnesian War. Uh, which is after Persia does the Hot Gates 300 thing. If you've got Sparta and Persia in your memory banks, it's after that. Uh, but after that, there's a war for Greece between the great city-states of Greece, particularly between Sparta and Athens. You've heard of Athens, of course, and you've probably heard of Sparta, you know, there's a couple football teams <laughs> and whatnot. Uh, so the war between them also involves the city of Thebes, and some changing sides and a whole lot of backstabbing and not sure. And here we go. And basically what happens is everybody fights everybody until they're so weak that Philip takes all of it. So Philip's up in Macedonia in the mountains in the north. He's kind of a tribal lord, really. He's not even that Greek compared to the Athens or to Sparta. But he's watching as they fight each other and they fight each other. And he's picking sides and learning from them. He ends up in prison for a while. But at the end of it, he sweeps house, takes over the entire thing. Philip's pulling together, though, of the tribes of Greece into one united front, all with the plan of going to attack Persia, which Greece has wanted to do since Persia lost to them. Um, it, it doesn't go so well in that he's got a weak alliance, right? So it's one thing if you've got a majority and you all vote together, but now you're in charge, and now these guys want this, and those guys want that, and I promised these guys this right? He's in that kind of world, and he's not really got friends everywhere. And then the real question ends up, like, does his wife hate him? Because what's going to happen is he's going to have his daughter, whose name happens to be Cleopatra, not the one you're thinking of, long before her, but her namesake. His daughter's going to get married to a guy named Alexander, not his son, but in the same time period as his son. And at this wedding in Philippi or somewhere like that at the great theater, which is filled with people, he gets stabbed by his own bodyguard. Stabbed in the back. Why? Two, two theories. One is that the bodyguard was slighted by him in a personal affront and so took vengeance. The other one is that his wife wanted his son to take over and so had him killed. 
I don't get the either or on this myself. It seems to me that Olympias is her name and she's a pretty wicked character. It seems to me that Olympias knew what she was doing. And why would she have him killed herself? Why wouldn't she find this guy who's got a, a, a thing against him that happens to be his bodyguard and be like, hey, so what if, what if I give you this? Will you do it? Yeah. And, and it goes so well. Like The guy stabs him in the back in this giant amphitheater in front of everybody, right? And so all the other guards, what do they do? They kill the killer. So now what can't you do? You can't ask any questions, right? right? Does that sound familiar? This has happened other places in history, right? You can see this again and again, uh, but that's what happens. And in the hubbub that comes after this, Alexander the Great uh, does take all the generals that have been with Philip and launch his attack uh, onto, onto Persia that gets all the way to India and so forth. But that puts Berea then inside of kind of the kernel of the Greek world, right? It's, it's the hub of the Greek world. It's not Athens. It's between Athens and Macedonia, right? It's, it's between the old and the new, so far as the elite are concerned. And uh, without going more into anything there than that, what I want you to pull from this then is, so when this congregation of Jews in this city that's on the path to the big cities in both directions, but it's a little bit hinterland, but it's okay. It's like Rockford, right? It's like Rockford, a lot. You know, we got Chicago and then we got Iowa. We're between the two, right? Um, that in this little place, their devotion to the word makes them so unique that no other congregation receives Paul the way that these, these people do. No one else gets said what's said of Berea. They're, they're noble-minded. And then again, that this is attached to their hunger for the scriptures. So let's kind of do then the journey of Paul into this Macedonian world with a little of that Peloponnesian history behind it. First journey, Paul and Barnabas are sent to Cyprus. You got your map. They go out to that island and they come up into the mainland, Asia Minor, what we call it today. Um, and then they come down into, you can see the word Galatia there. Uh, multiple congregations that were founded there. The letter to the Galatians is written to them. And they get down into a Galatia by Iconium, Lystra, Derby. You can even see those names on there. And then they go back the same way they came. They go around all the way back down by the sea. So after that, you might remember, they end up at the Jerusalem Council arguing about circumcision. Then they get a letter they take back that says, don't have to worry about circumcision, right? Some others go off with that letter to other churches. But Paul uh, gets an inkling to go back to the churches in Asia Minor, the churches of Galatia, and, and visit them again, as well as bring the letter. And so he and Barnabas prepare to do this, but you might remember they get in a little bit of a debate over whether or not Barnabas's cousin, John Mark, is up for the task. John Mark had come on the first journey and kind of quit halfway through. The long short of this is that Barnabas and Paul split ways. And Barnabas goes, again, if you have your map, he goes the way they went in the first place. He goes to, uh, to Cyprus. And he goes out in this circle, and his plan is basically to go up the way they went before. Well, if he's going to go the way they went before, how does Paul go? Paul goes the other way. He goes east and then north through the mountains, and then down into Galatia to come up from the other side. That's the way that he goes. And uh, after they get up through these churches, Lystra, Derby, they see them all. Uh, they try to go further east to a province of Rome called Asia. So it's not really past the Black Sea at all. Um, it's not India. It's not China. It's, it's part of what we'd call Turkey today. Um, but they try to go into that region of, of Asia, 
And the Holy Spirit, it says, prevents them from doing that. And if I might just uh, get on a hobby horse for half a second, uh, whenever when someone tells you that the church of God must always be making converts or it's not really the church of God, go to this place. There are times when the Holy Spirit does not want to convert people. And some Lutherans are going to say, but God wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I say, yes, that is what the scripture says. And it also says, he didn't let them preach in Asia. Why? Well, they were hardened. God knew they were hardened. They were going to be hardened more. I don't know, but I do know Paul has a dream about where he's supposed to go. And wouldn't you know, it's a man from not Greece, not Thessalonica, not Philippi. It's a man from Macedonia, which means, I don't know, like Alexander the Great's home kingdom, right? all of Greece. So they get on a boat, they go across, they land at Philippi. Now that you've learned that the first real king of Macedonia was named Philip, can you guess who founded Philippi? Huh? You see how all the pieces start to line up with each other? All these kings, when they get in charge of anything, the first thing they do is they found a city. Like they got a city, like, oh, dad had a city. Guess what? I want my own city. They make another one. And they often do what? They name it after themselves, their daughter, or their wife. All the way through history. You can see it again and again. And then that makes every single place not just a name somewhere. It's a history. Philippi exists because of the reign of Philip, king of Macedonia. That's why it's there. And then where does Paul go? Straight to the heart. Straight to the heart. And the story of what happens in Philippi is pretty cool. That's in Acts chapter 16. Um, And uh, uh, more or less, let's see here. Yeah, the Macedonian call, 16, 16 and following. Um, Maybe I'll add that to your homework for today when we get to the end. But uh, a lot happens there. We don't have time for it in service today. Uh, They end up in prison again. They're in prison because they're preaching Jesus is risen from the dead. Uh, Before they get put in chains overnight, Paul and and Silas are, are beaten. They're Beaten, can you imagine this? You get arrested for a tax fraud issue or something, you know, false charges, whatever. And then they take you in and you're like, well, you're, you didn't do it. We're going to beat you anyway. They beat them and then they throw them in prison overnight. And they're there having, what, been, again, beaten. Uh, the jailer, their wounds yet. Uh, uh, and they're singing. Paul decides in the middle of the night, you know what? I can't sleep in this rocks with the chains and my blood everywhere. So I guess I'll just pray the Psalms. How would he do that? Did they hand him a Bible? I don't think so. I I think he had a habit of praying the Psalms and he knew some of them and they were singing them together and then there's an earthquake. (laughs) Uh, God answers his prayers and he opens up the prison. This has happened before, right? Peter gets out that way twice, I think. Uh, So here it is again. And this time now the jailer wakes up and he sees that all the doors have been flung open and he assumes everyone has left and he prepares uh, to commit seppuku, uh, which is the Japanese way of saying fall on your sword. To commit ritual suicide, probably as a way of sparing his family from the punishment he was going to get for letting the prisoners escape. But before he can do it, Paul says, don't do it. I'm here. We're here. It's all good. And there proceeds then, uh, I would imagine, a significant conversation. Uh, The jailer uh, does bind up their wounds, cleans them, gives them bandages, uh, hears about Jesus Christ, says, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on him. He does. Him and his whole household. The whole household is baptized. Which, can I give you another tangent here? One minute off to the side. There are those out there who want to say that you should not baptize a baby 
because there are no babies baptized in the Bible. And the story, that's the whole argument. And the trick with that argument is that it's, it's biased because the Philippian jailer, it says it baptized his whole household. And so the argument says, but that doesn't say babies. And the argument says, but it doesn't say not babies. So now we're stuck with our opinion. We actually are stuck with our opinion on, on this verse, except for, is there the potential for babies here? And this is the thing. Everywhere the Bible speaks about baptism, the potential for babies is there. It never says, don't do it. So you see a whole household. I mean, can you imagine, do you think, do you think every single person of that household, every slave that belonged to this jailer, that they all with their own heart completely were convicted and believed? Or did they hear that their master had believed and they submitted to his religion? And then over the next several weeks, they learned what that meant and did believe. And I submit to you, number two is a little more how it actually works a lot of the time. In any case, Paul leaves a bunch of believers behind him in Philippi. Yeah, all connected to this jailer and then others, some of the women and, and leaders that had converted before. And, and the, uh, the story of how they leave, the officials try to release them quietly. Um, they just don't even care. They, they don't want to make a stink. But Paul happens to have some rights. Uh, the Bill of Rights had not been drafted yet. But if you were a Roman citizen, you had your own kind of version of that. Uh, and one of those things meant that they couldn't beat you without trial. Hey, look at that. They beat him without trial. Where's my lawyer, Paul says. And he gets a little conversation with the leaders of the city. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. But they say, please leave. <laughs> uh, we don't want you here. And they do. They leave. And then that's where we picked up with our text. Uh, chapter 17, verse 1 and following, page 926, where it says, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. So, oh, I dropped my map. I may not be able to find it in time to help you. But you should be able to see on that northern Greek peninsula, Philippi is east of uh, Thessalonica, northeast, so kind of on a, a southwest trajectory. That's that travel road, and they're coming kind of through a more mountainous terrain and out of that terrain a little bit to an area, Thessalonica, that's known for horse land. It's horse country, all right? uh, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This actually starts out pretty well. Three, three Sabbath days, three weeks in a row, they're willing to listen to him. Which implies that some of the leadership in this congregation uh, were approving of what happened. Uh, he's explaining and proving, verse 3, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. I love this here, too. We're going to get a very brief summary of what did Paul talk about when he tried to tell people about Christ. Well, he talked about how first it was necessary for him to suffer. That's the beginning of it. And of course, his deaths included because then it's necessary for him to rise from the dead. And so that suffering under Pontius Pilate is the particular penal accusation of God, right? The penalty of sin being put upon him. Uh, he suffered and then rose from the dead. He is risen. Alleluia saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ, right? So, so he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises about a prophet, a priest, and a king who will unify God's religion once and for all for the entire world, beginning at Jerusalem and going to the ends of the earth. Now, that's what he's preaching. And verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous 
And taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting. We'll get to the accusation here um, in a moment. But uh, first, so three, three weekends in a row, that means someone's coming to our church. And for three weeks in a row, I let him preach. And he's preaching something that sounds like what you know, but it sounds like it's new. And about the third weekend, a big core of you says, no more of this. But the way that things work then is you go, you get the sheriffs, the PD, and Black Lives Matter. You bring them all together. You say, these people are the people who are here to destroy us, and we can prove it. You don't have to prove it. You just have to get to court with that accusation. And the mob, uh, the, the riling up of the people, the populism, the democracy, I don't know what you want to call it, the majority rule. It's not really ever a majority rule. A mob is a majority that's ruled by a small group who knows how to stir them up. And, and look, here it is. Happens over and over again in history. Uh, and they're accusing uh, these men, verse 6, have turned the world upside down and have come here also. So they've got word from other cities where there are synagogues about Christianity. The news is getting out not only that he is risen, Alleluia, but that they stole the body and they're liars trying to steal money and destroy Judaism and stop Torah and get rid of Moses and tear down the temple, right? So, so that message is also getting out and, and they, they've heard of this, that it's causing division. And even the Greeks then are hearing everywhere they go, there's like a riot, right? Everywhere Paul goes, he's chased out by a riot. Here they are among us and Jason, right? So whatever your small faction is here, Mike, right? Y'all point, he let him stay. No, he's letting them be here. They are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there's another King Jesus. Oh, by the way, they're not just here talking about eternal life. They're here trying to overthrow the actual empire that rules us. That's the accusation at court with a mob bringing you to court having surrounded your house and dragged you into the street first. And by the time this is done, you get to pay a bill, not them. <laughs> Which is what happens to Jason, right? He has to convince the powers that be, no, no, no. I just believe in a kingdom of another age to come that changes my behavior now and makes me believe in eternal life. You should join us. I don't actually want to destroy the city or overthrow Caesar. That's not on my agenda at all. Like, fine, prove it, bail. Buy a bond, we'll let you go. Right? And that's what happens to Jason. Uh, uh, in the meantime, uh, uh, verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night, notice the secrecy, uh, to Berea. They're fleeing, or more, they're protecting Paul. And I didn't say this very well last service. I, I, it's just so important, though. You got two things going on here. Paul's got to know his life's at risk. He's got to know. And because of that, you can't avoid, if your life's at risk, you can't avoid some sort of bodily reaction to that, like fear. You don't think about fear before you're afraid. You're like, oh, a tiger. I shall be afraid now. Like, it, that's not how it works, right? It just happens. He's a man. So he had to be kind of like, it's the middle of the night. We're being swept away in secret. We're looking over our shoulders, watching for, is anyone following us? Like, that's all going to be happening to him. And yet all the way, he also has to know that if, if he dies, it's all good. It's why he's here. He probably won't die. 
supposed to preach in Rome someday. He's got visions about that, promises. You don't have visions and promises yourself, but you do have, actually, the promise of your baptism, your anointing into Christ, the promise of the Lord's Supper to feed you on the journey, right? And so Paul's life is a picture of, of you, really, with the whole world hounding you everywhere you go, you try to read your Bible, you try to trust, and it just seems to always be up against you, and you got to look over your shoulders all along, though. The promise is what sustained Paul. It wasn't Paul being so great. It was the promise that drove him, the conviction of his heart made alive by the Spirit through the preaching of the Word of God, Yeah, which is what is going to make Berea so special. Uh, he comes down to Berea, and he's out of the... The, the suburban metropolis down to the, the merchant uh, crossroads city, right? And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And I think that's pretty key, more noble. What's that mean? Higher-minded. Higher-minded. He's going to define that in a moment. Uh, they received the word of God with all eagerness. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So to, to be noble-minded in the Christian sense is to examine the scriptures daily because you know you need the word of God. Not because you want the word of God, not because you think it'll feel good, not because it's entertaining or easy, none of those things. No, no, but you know you need it. You believe it's necessary to eat today. That's noble-minded. That's to receive the word with fullness. And things would have gone on like that there. In fact, they do go on like that there, just without Paul. Uh, God wants Paul to get stuck in Athens all by himself. So um, <laughs> uh, after many of them convert, verse 13, uh, when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So two preachers remaining at the congregation, continuing to teach them uh, about their questions that I'm sure they find. Daily reading the Bible, you're going to find questions. Bring them to church. Ask the pastor. That's what I'm here for, right? Um, so they leave them there for that. Paul goes with a couple of others. They put him on a boat. They're on the boat with him down to Athens. But once they get to Athens, they just drop him there. Um, so that's verse 15. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So Paul's left all by himself in Athens, which leads to a whole other set of stories. And now, again, we've, we've gone from you're in Persia trying to go east and you're called to Alexander the Great's Macedonia. And what would Macedonia be? If it hadn't conquered Athens, Athens is still the, the capital of the thinking. It's, it's the place of the academy where Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Homer are taught, right? And that's who Paul's going to go talk to next. There is so much inspiration we can draw from these stories. I mean, I hope just listening today, it wasn't like boringest thing ever, right? Uh, it isn't flashy. Um, it doesn't sparkle but it's invigorating to hear about the real world and what happened in our real world long ago, especially insofar as it's also our religion. That's invigorating. It fills us up. And then from there, as we continue to do that, to journey together through this world as a people whose religion is the Holy Scriptures of Jesus Christ, 
I want us as a congregation to put a double down, bet it all on, do we want to be here another 130 years? Do we? The Lord's Supper was key. That's where I started with you all. I said, well, we better have this every week. Get that thing going first. What's second? Now when you leave, God, take it with you. And what does that mean? It means open your Bible this week and read it. And if that seems like it's going to be too much, oh my gosh, the whole Bible, I actually have homework for you to make it a little easier. Huh? It's not too much, but you wouldn't even have to read every day, maybe three sittings throughout the, throughout the week, 15 minutes each, and, and you'll get there. So here's, here's that. And it's all, it's all kind of a little bit of playing with the word Philip. Uh, so there's, there's a couple of Philips I'm going to mention here. Uh, but remember, Alexander the Great's father was Philip of Macedonia, Philip II. And if you study Alexander the Great, if you study ancient history, you're going to study him. Um, and, and most people kind of get inspired by this kid who conquered the world. I mean, it's like, you know, Luke Skywalker and Harry Potter all rolled into one, but actually happened, right? Um, and except he was like a roaring drunk and a reckless barbarian, a bunch of other stuff. You wouldn't want your kids hanging out with him at all, probably. Um, Might have been a cool uncle. I don't know. Um, everyone wants to study Alexander. Everyone wants to see, he, oh, he, he's the great, right? Philip of Macedon kind of falls in the background, even though if there had been no Philip of Macedon, seeing clearly enough that everything else was falling apart, so he patched it up and put it together, if he hadn't done that, Alexander couldn't have taken it and run with it. So my encouragement to you as a congregation that's going to study the scripture more is as you study the scripture, learn from the pagans that if you want Alexanders to arise amongst the church, you want the church to have great men out in front taking dangerous risks. Well, then you need some great men behind and at home building the stable base from which you can go out and confess and testify before the world. So we don't need a lot of Alexanders. We need, we need a lot of Philips. And wouldn't you know, the book of Acts has a story about a guy named Philip who we haven't touched yet in all of this series we've done. That's what I'm going to ask you to read this week. The story of Philip, the deacon. This is in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 8 and 26 to 40, and Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. I'll say that again at the end so you can write it down and go get it. And by the way, if you want to make it even more fun, you can add Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. There you'll have not the story of Philip at all, but the story of Paul in Philip I. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, so uh, the week's homework is all about Philip in the book of Acts. Uh, go check out his story. If you want to read about Paul in Philippi with that jailer and all that, that's that last text I gave you, Acts 6, 1 to 7, Acts 8, 1 to 8, 26 to 40, Acts 21, 1 to 14. You can throw in Acts 16 for fun at the end if you want. My prayer, my hope, my call to action, St. Paul. I know this. This isn't like a question for me. I know it'll work. And I actually know God's going to make you do it because he wouldn't have brought us this far if he wasn't going to. <laughs> like, I think he would have had a shut and quiet up by now. So I know you're going to do it. Yeah. What I want then is for you to know you're going to do it. I want you to open that Bible knowing that even though it doesn't feel like it's changing your life, even though it doesn't feel like it's magical and powerful, even though it doesn't feel like it's conquering the world, it is. And it's starting by conquering you're not wanting to read it. That's where it's going to start in your world. And after it conquers you, then you're going to reign in it. It will reign in you. The Holy Spirit alive will make the word of God come out of your mouth. And the more that it does, the more you're going to enjoy talking to everyone here because you're going to say the same stuff. 
And the more people out there are going to be like, wow, that made sense. Have you ever had that happen? Just wait. Just wait. I almost, I almost challenge you. Read the Bible the way I'm going to ask you to for a year. Get into Sons of Solomon, Daughters of Wisdom. And then somewhere, you're going to be in a conversation with someone who you think is pretty smart. And you're going to talk and talk and talk. And you're going to stop. And they're just going to be like, and you're going to be like, did that make sense? Was I confusing? It's going to throw you off because they have nothing to say. You said it so well that they, they grew silent. Well, the Bible does that. It'll do it to you. I don't want you to think maybe. I want you to believe it. Start reading like the church in Berea. In the name of Jesus, amen.